Well, good morning again to all of you, and welcome, especially to those of you who are joining us right now in the traditional sanctuary and via broadcast. I'm so glad to be here with you and that we all can be together learning God's Word together. And so as you're getting settled here, I invite you to take out your study guides and your worship bulletin this morning, be able to follow along with what's happening today, and take some notes on the Bible passages that we're reading. And if you have a Bible with you, now's a great time to take that out. Or if you want to use one and don't have one with you, our ushers are in the side aisles and in the center aisle in our traditional sanctuary. and would love to share one with you uh, if you need a Bible to use during worship today. I just begin by apologizing. I seem to develop a cough in between services today, so I'm sorry if it's a little bit hard to hear. And I'm grateful for our sound tech people who will make me heard anyway. Thanks, guys. Hey, have any of you ever, <clears throat> excuse me, have any of you ever gotten lost when you were driving somewhere? It's kind of a bad feeling, isn't it? Have you ever, you ever go left when you're supposed to go right? You go right when you're supposed to go left, zigzag, zag, zig, whatever that is. You know, I, I tend to be someone who's pretty good with directions most of the time. Once I go somewhere, I can find it again, all that kind of thing. But I made a big blunder a number of years ago. This is back when I was living in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, my late teens, early 20s. And I was driving to visit a friend named Scott who lived in Chicago. And you ought to know that if you drive from Cleveland to Chicago, that's not a complicated set of directions, right? For, for my house, it was drive to I-90, turn left, and turn on the cruise control, right? Six hours later, you'll be there. That's just all there is to it. But there is a spot in western Indiana where Interstate 90 and Interstate 94 run on the same road for a little while. Maybe some of you have been there before. And even though 90 is the main road that kind of runs through there, to stay on 90 when you're going back from Chicago to Cleveland, you actually have to take the exit, a right exit, kind of loop around and stay on the highway. And I was 19 or 20 years old, and when you're that age, you don't usually pay much attention when you're driving anyway. You don't think you have to, right? So I wasn't paying much attention. I just drove right on past that exit and just going along my merry way, and I was starting to notice it. I don't recognize the names of these towns anymore that I'm passing at the exits, you know, and that should have been a clue because I had just driven by them a few days before, and then I realized <clears throat> that I've crossed into southern Michigan, you know, like I'm in an entirely wrong state now, heading for Detroit instead of for the city of Cleveland. And I haven't told a lot of people that story, so keep that a secret now, okay? It's a little bit embarrassing. Have you ever gone the wrong way, you know, at a fork in the road? And it's okay when you're driving somewhere, but there are times in life when we meet forks in the road, in the road of life, and it's even more important that you go the right way when, than just when you're driving somewhere. We're in the last week of our trail markers series this week, looking at the, at the markers along the trail, the signposts along the way that have been put down for us by Christians who have gone before us to help keep us on the path with Christ. And the trail marker this, way, this week is represented in the shape of a fork in the road sign. And this image comes from a story in Jesus' life where he was telling his disciples and the crowds that followed him, he was telling them that he was going to go off and be crucified, that he was going to go off and get betrayed and get arrested by the authorities in the land, and they were going to kill him. And he told his disciples and the crowds that were around him that this was so, such a hard thing for them to hear. This was such a hard truth that they would not be able to believe in him anymore. They would not be able to follow him unless God himself gave them the strength to do it. And then in kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, many of his disciples at that time, the Bible tells us, and not just the crowds. I think that's interesting. The story tells us that many of Jesus' disciples, those who followed him, who had been apprenticed to his way of life, they turned away at that point. Some stayed, but many turned away. And it's easy to criticize them for that, but I don't want to blame them too harshly. They made the wrong choice, but I'm sympathetic to that because I think a lot of us would very likely have made the same choice. When our leader said, hey, I'm going to go off and get arrested and killed, and that'll be the end. You know, and some, they, didn't, they didn't understand resurrection of the dead. Even when he talked about it, the Bible tells us they didn't understand what he meant by that. If you thought the movement you were a part of was going to lose, you might try to find that was going to win. 
And furthermore, they were following Jesus. They were his disciples. And the penny might have dropped for them and thought, gosh, if I go Jesus' way and he gets killed, what's going to happen to me? Maybe I'm going to wind up on a cross too. A lot of people turned away from that, the Bible tells us. But some of them stayed. And while there may not be as much that we can learn from the disciples who turned away, because any of us could have probably done the same thing, it's remarkable that some of them stayed. And what I'd like to do with our time this morning is to consider what it was that they saw. How was it that they came to embrace, not turn away from, but embrace the message of the cross and embrace, embrace the life and the way of the cross? What did they see that the others didn't see? And if I can say it even more complicated, what will we see if we see what they saw? Here's the first thing I think that they saw. They saw that in the cross... Jesus had conquered the heart of darkness, that he had conquered the darkest place. See, now the Romans who practiced crucifixion, they meant for crucifixion to be pretty much the heart of darkness. They didn't invent it. We know from history that the Greeks and the Persians practiced crucifixion before the Romans did. They didn't invent it, but they perfected it. They made it famous. In ancient Rome, they understood there to be a a spectrum of ways that you could kill somebody, that you could execute somebody. And at the kind end of that spectrum of terrible ways to kill somebody was decapitation. You could just cut their heads off. And that was, they understood that to be sort of the easiest way to execute someone. After that, up the cruelty ladder, there was burning somebody to death. That does prolong the suffering even longer. And at the top of the cruelty ladder, in Roman thinking about this, was crucifixion. Because crucifixion accomplished a number of terrible things for the Romans. First of all, it it inflicted a high level of suffering on the victim. I think this is probably obvious, and they were glad to do that. It inflicted a high level of suffering on the victim. They also liked crucifixion because it was so public, because they'd put somebody up on a cross for all the crowds to see, and it humiliated them, and it was a great public deterrent. Don't ever think about doing what this person did, or, you, or we will do to you what we did to them. And a lot of times they would even put like a a sign above the cross. They would say what the charge was so you would know, don't ever do this unless you want to die like this. So it inflicted a lot of suffering. It was a public deterrent and a public humiliation. And also it was a total defeat of the friends and family system of whoever they crucified. So they were trying to stop not just this person, but to stop anybody who would do this. And this is, in the case of Jesus and those who were crucified with him, is a little bit of an exception to this rule we find out. But in most cases, the Romans just left people up on the crosses for days and weeks. Even after they died, they just leave their bodies up there. So there'd be nothing left for the families or friends to bury till the birds and the wild animals came and took care of business. So they took all the dignity and any hope away from the friends and family. They meant for this to be the heart of darkness. They did a good job with that. And so these very first followers of Jesus who knew that Jesus had conquered the cross that he had been crucified and raised again from the dead, they knew that if Jesus had conquered over the heart of darkness, then they would never find themselves in a situation where they had to be without hope. I just want to give you an example here, just one example from the Bible of how the Christians used the message of the cross as a source of courage for themselves. If you have a Bible with you, you might want to open to Hebrews chapter 12. It's way toward the end of the New Testament. If you have one of the Quest Bibles, it's on page 1778. We're going to start in the middle of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, in just a second. The book of Hebrews was originally addressed to an audience of Christians in the second half of the first century, maybe 30 or 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And these Christians who were addressed by Hebrews, 
they were in some fairly dark times. It was a high level of challenge and persecution and trial for them. And the author of Hebrews encouraged them to look at the cross of Christ for their strength. This is what it says here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. I'll start in the middle of the verse. And so let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He's the one who's gone before us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So Jesus has been there before you, and consider the victory that he won, and take courage from that. I mean, think about this. How does it work for you if you're in a time of steep challenge, if you're in a time that's really genuinely hard for you, how much is it worth it to you to know somebody who has been there before and made it through? I mean, for me, that's really helpful. And it's especially helpful if they're willing to help me with it, not just like they did it and I might fail, then I feel bad, but they did it and they can help me through it. That means the world to me. On the other hand, maybe you've also had that experience where someone says to you, oh, I know exactly how you feel, you know, and you know they have no idea what you're going through. That's a lot less helpful. And I know that among us who are gathered here in worship today, that there has been darkness, that we have suffered that some of us have been eyeball to eyeball with some pretty dark and pretty hard times. And I want to remind you on the basis of this story that Jesus has been there ahead of you. And that when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, that when he says, as he says in Scripture, my power will be made perfect, it will be made whole in your weakness. When he says, there is a bright light at the end of this tunnel, and he does know what he's talking about. And that when he says, follow me, that he has earned our trust because he has walked through the valley of the dark shadow of death and come on through to life on the other side. And so he is not only with us in our darkness, which is valuable in itself, but he has also conquered over it. Jesus has conquered the heart of darkness. The, the Romans, they meant for crucifixion to be victory for them. They meant for it to say, we win, you lose. We, will, we live, you die. Easter Sunday was God's way of saying, oh, no, you don't. To the manifestation of sin and death and power and tyranny and injustice and murder, God conquered over it. Good Friday happened because Jesus went willingly to the cross. And when he went willingly to the cross, he let the power of evil manifest in humanity take its evilest blow, wind up and strike the hardest strike that it could take against the innocentest man there ever was. And he let it knock him down. And then when the tomb was empty on Sunday morning, that was Jesus going, is that all you got? Because I've got the power of life that triumphs over the power of death. He has conquered the heart of darkness. And if you've got a Jesus who, who teaches good lessons and spreads nice ideas and promotes positive values, that's a good thing when you're in the light. Hmm? But it may not be that much use to you when you're in the dark. But if you've got a Jesus who has conquered over the cross, then even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil because Jesus has been there first and conquered over it. And the disciples who embraced the message of the cross and the way of the cross, they knew that and they share that with us. Now, the second thing that, that may connect with us at a little bit different point in our lives is that the disciples who embraced the message of the cross, they also saw that the cross 
was a powerful way of life, that it was the way of Christian discipleship, and they trusted God enough to walk it. Let me show you again in the Bible how Jesus says this to his disciples. If you have a Bible with you, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to read in verse 24. It's on page 1438 of your Quest Bibles. This is one of those kind of fork in the road moments where Jesus is telling his disciples what's coming for him, that the cross is ahead, and that it may very well be ahead for them also. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We know that for some of Jesus' disciples, that was a literal cross, and sometimes that was metaphorical. They left their own lives behind and pursued a new life. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's an amazing promise that's hard for us to believe. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That is not one of Jesus' most popular teachings. It was not popular then. It is not a popular thing to be able to say now. And you just imagine the the most popular books that are sold in Christian bookstores or christianbook.com, wherever it is you might find Christian books and literature. These are the books that tell you that following Jesus will make your life easier and happier, more successful, more prosperous. And people write books like that. They sell a lot of copies. They make the lives of their authors more successful and more prosperous. It kind of works that way. There are also books that people write that say, I have followed Jesus and it has meant sacrifice for me. And it might mean sacrifice for you. It might mean denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. It could mean challenge. It could mean opposition from those who don't understand or don't want to understand. Those books sell a lot fewer copies. It's not a popular thing to say. We would rather, I think, myself included, we would rather imagine that Jesus came to this world to make us a better version of the self that we already decided to be without Jesus' input. We would rather have Jesus help us do the things that we already wanted to do before he ever led us anywhere. And this is a hard thing for us to think about and talk about. As I've been preparing for this message for a while now, I went back and forth on whether I could say this or not, because it's not easy to say. On the one hand, as a pastor, I, don't, I, I, have, I struggle to say this kind of thing because I know that it's a fork in the road, and I don't want anyone to turn away. I'd, I'd like all y'all to stick around as long as possible, you know? And so as a pastor, even, there's a reluctance to preach the cross. That's an ironic, terrible thing, isn't it? But then as a a fellow disciple of Jesus, I struggle with this because I'm not really worthy of the words. You know, I, I know when the cross appears before me and I can go one way or the other. If I can get away with it, I often go the other. I'm not so interested in denying myself and losing my life so that in Christ I may find it. It's it's hard for us to believe. It takes faith, it takes real faith to go the way of the cross. I think, as I've reflected on this, I think that might be one of the main things the Bible actually means when it uses the word faith. It means that we will believe in Jesus and trust God enough to walk that way, to walk the way of the cross. It means that we will believe that the power of life and the power of salvation for us, for now and forever, is actually in God's hands and not ours. And we all say we believe that. I mean, what else are you going to say in church, right? But we struggle to believe that God will actually make good what we would lose down the road of self-sacrifice. Jesus said it was so, but we struggle mightily to believe that. 
And so when we gather for worship, we read the story of Jesus and we remind ourselves of the road that he walked, that we know that he laid down his life for others literally and that God raised him up again from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And we remind ourselves of the earliest disciples who embraced the message and the way of the cross and left their nets behind and said, I'll just go with you, whatever that means. I believe that more life lies down the road with you than it does down the road that I would design and that I would care for. It takes faith to believe that. And so we remind ourselves of the story of Jesus himself and the story of his disciples who walked after him. One of the things I love about being a Christian, of being a follower of Jesus, is that so many people have done it before. There's a long road behind us of tradition and ancestors in the Christian faith who point the way for us, say, we've done this. We've proved God to be faithful. We've seen it. Trust him as we have for the miles that are ahead of you. They found that the cross was also a powerful way of life. And then finally, this is probably the one that's hardest for us to see by ourselves without God showing it to us. That is that those first disciples of Jesus who embraced the message and the way of the cross, what they saw in the cross was the mysterious and wonderful victory of God. They saw the victory of God. Consider consider the trial that actually led to Jesus' crucifixion. He was on trial before a a regional governor whose name was Pontius Pilate. And and Pontius Pilate had been appointed by and served at the pleasure of the king of the Roman Empire, whose name was Tiberius Caesar, who was the king of the Roman Empire, which for all intents and purposes was the king of the world as far as any of them knew. And Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, the appointee of Tiberius Caesar, hinged, it was all about, it revolved around the question of Jesus' kingship. That was the charge that the Jewish leaders made against Jesus and brought him to Pilate. He was being charged with false pretensions to kingship. And that was a serious charge. It's why they used it, because they knew it was enough to get Rome to kill him if they found out it was true. Because there are not kingdoms that like the idea that other people think that they're kings, right? The Romans didn't like that. That did not make for peace. It did not make for power and prosperity for them. World history shows us that powerful people don't like other, po- other people claiming to have power. And they're usually willing to use lethal force to enforce that idea. And so they brought Jesus to Pilate and accused him of being the king of the Jews. And I just want to reread with you the climax of that story that we heard read already in both of our worship services. But in this context, to see it again. So turn with me, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 19. The fourth book of the New Testament here. It's in your Quest Bibles on page 1586. We're going to read starting in verse 12. This is the end of the scene of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. And so this is after kind of a long back and forth between Pilate and Jesus and the crowds that are around him. And this is what happens at the end of this scene. It says in verse John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So they've kind of put their finger on Pilate's soft spot here. His neck is on the line. He can't be disloyal to his boss or he's going to maybe wind up dead. It says in verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, It was about noon. So this is the day before the high festival of the Jewish year called Passover. And this is happening then. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. 
Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. I imagine he's kind of twisting the knife on them here a little bit. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. A remarkable display of loyalty from the Jewish spiritual leaders to the pagan king of the Roman Empire. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And in the stories of Jesus' trial and crucifixion in the four Gospels, we know that the next thing was that the soldiers, the guards, took Jesus away. They continued to mock his kingship, put royal purple robes on him. They put a crown on his head, a crown made of thorns. They pretended to honor him, hail, king of the Jews. And they could do this because it was such a ridiculous, preposterous, fool-headed idea that this criminal convict could possibly be a king. They were seeing no victory in this guy. But the worst rejection, the bitterest rejection, came from Jesus' own people in the words they had already spoken. We have no king but Caesar. And John tells us that this happened on the day of preparation for the Passover. He makes a point of that date. And Passover was this holiday that the Jews celebrated every year for some 1,500 years since the time when God had previously had a conflict with another pagan king who had understood himself to be divine and enslaved God's people and insisted that people worship him as a god. 1,500 years ago, it had been Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And now here in this day, it was Caesar, the king of Rome. It, it was, as they like to say in sports announcing, deja vu all over again. Here we are on this day. And here in this place, at Passover, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And it was at Passover that the Jews celebrated every year, and they reminded themselves of their loyalty, not to any pagan ruler who seemed to have the power of the day, but of their loyalty and their worship to the one true living God who had the power for all eternity. And as they had the, these readings and songs and liturgies that went along with Passover even 2,000 years ago, when they would worship at Passover, they'd gather in Jerusalem, they kind of rehearsed their lines in worship for the rest of their lives, which is one of the things that worship is still for. Right? We come into this place and we confess that Jesus is Lord, and we confess our, our sins and our brokenness and our fears. We lay them before God so that we may experience and hear the good news of God's grace and strength and power for the rest of our lives. We, we worship God in here so that we will be strengthened to live that way out there. We're, we're practicing our lines, if you will. And the Jews, one of the lines that they had in their Passover worship was to confess their faith in God alone. And they said, God, we have no king but thee. We are your people. We will worship you. We will serve you. We'll be loyal to you. We live under your rule because you are the one true God and king of heaven and earth. And so it was on Passover, as the people were saying these things, that the chief priests of Israel, the spiritual leaders of God's people, went before the minister of the most powerful pagan king on earth and said so proudly, we have no king but Caesar. And as for God's Messiah, they said, take him away. Crucify him. Crucify him. And so it is that Jesus goes to be crucified as the king and to be slaughtered at the same time as the Passover lamb. He dies as our king, and he dies in our place. And so it is that for Jesus' sake that God passes over the sins of his people, and he preserves the lives of his sons and daughters. Jesus dies as our king, and he dies in our place. And the only reason that any of those first disciples of Jesus bothered to write this story down was because this story did not end there. I mean, if this story ended there, I imagine we may never even have heard of it. 
But they wrote this story down because they know that's not how the story ended. They wrote the story down because they know that Jesus did not stay dead. They wrote down this story because God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in royal authority in the heavenly realms as the king of heaven and earth. They wrote this story down because they knew that the powers of this world had tried to call Jesus' bluff, but then it turned out that he was holding aces, that he really was and is the king of heaven and earth. They saw in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus the deeply mysterious and powerfully wonderful victory of God over the power of sin and death and evil in our world. And so it comes to be that at the cross of Christ, there is always a fork in the road. And everybody goes one way or the other. In just the same way that there had been a fork in the road at that Passover, now some 3,500 years ago, when there are people who looked at the power that the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had and said, man, I think he's holding all the cards. That sure looks like the side that's going to win. I would rather believe in that power. And there were some people who believed in the promise of the living God who said, come with me and I will set you free and I will lead you on the way to life. And one of those choices turned out to be pretty smart and it led to life and one of those choices was dead wrong. And so it happened again that as Jesus was on trial before Pilate on the Passover holiday again, this time around the year A.D. 30, that there came to be a fork in the road. That there were plenty of people who said, I cannot believe that that could possibly be the way of life. I'm going this way. I'm going with those who look powerful. I'm going with the way of life that allows me to save my own life and bless my own life and take care of what seems to need to be taken care of. I'm going that way. And there were those who looked at this Jesus from Galilee and said, no, I believe him. And I believe that life lies in his hands. And I'm going that way. And one of those choices turned out to be pretty smart when the tomb was empty three days later. And one of those choices was not. And it happens every time the message of the cross has been proclaimed thousands and millions of times in the 2,000 years since that time. Because every time we hear that story, we're confronted with the choice. I will trust in my own power. I will save my own life. I will go with what appears to work out so well right now. And then I lose my life. Or I go this way, down the way that Jesus said, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And we cast our lot with Jesus. And I'm standing here today to remind you of this story, to remind you of Jesus who has conquered the very heart of darkness, who has invited us into the way of discipleship, who has been revealed to us as the king of heaven and earth. In the long train of disciples of Jesus who have gone before us down this road, who have trusted God and found him to be faithful, who stand there in a chorus of voices to remind us which way is life and to invite us to choose that path. I suppose in some ways I'm standing here today to choose that path again for myself, together as the people of God to say, to give ourselves the opportunity to be strengthened by one another and say, we believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus and I believe that his way is life and that he is life and that I will go that way wherever he leads because I want to live so that I may live forever and so that I may live today. There's always a fork in the road whenever the message of the cross is preached. And I say we go down the Jesus way. Let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, you're so good. You have offered salvation and life to your people forever. You have shown us the way of life. You have conquered over the heart of darkness, and we have been in dark places. And we count on you for our salvation. God, we do believe in you. We trust your power over any power that we or those like us could manufacture. We go your way. 
And God, I pray that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you'd fill it up with light, that you'd fill up our lives with hope. God, fill us with your strength because we come to the end of our own. And God, I pray that you would fill us up with faith that we cannot manufacture or muster on our own, but to know that you are good and that you are faithful. God, I pray that you would teach us to trust you, to lose our lives for Jesus' sake, that we might find them in you and experience a level of life and blessing that we cannot on our own. We acknowledge that you are our king. And we surrender whatever it was, whatever fishing nets we had when you called us, we follow you. Whatever life we have, whatever stuff, whatever makes us comfortable, I lay it before you. We lay it before you. And we want to go where you lead because we believe that you are the king. You are our king. In Jesus' name we pray.